This is the Mark Dolan Way. Top tips for mind, body and soul, some great life hacks and my favourite products of the week. This show is available on all podcast platforms or you can watch it. Just subscribe to the Mark Dolan Way on YouTube and join the Facebook group. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the show. I've got some very healing information for you, which is that your problems are not unique. So whatever you're going through, however cataclysmic they feel, human beings all suffer, always have done, always will. There is always pain. It doesn't mean that you've done something wrong. It is life. It's terribly important not to overinterpret when things are not working out. It's just a human sign. It means that life is happening and you're being tested. And it really helps because if you think about it, you go around and you look at social media and everyone seems very happy, don't they? They've got amazing lives, wearing amazing clothes with amazing, amazing uh, physical bodies. Everyone's gorgeous. Everyone's rich and successful on social media, on Instagram. And then you are feeling a little less glamorous, less successful, less rich, less slim and lean and muscly. But the bottom line is that everyone is suffering, even the guy who you see driving along in a in a Porsche. OK, he's wearing his Ray-Bans. All is good with the world. And you're like, he's got his he's got his act together, except what you don't know is going what is going on inside his head. And what could be inside his head is that he wants to wrap that Porsche around the next available lamp post because he too, Mr. Porsche man, is suffering. So life is hard, but your problems are not unique. So here we are. How are things? It's great to see you. I've missed you. It's been a week. Lots to talk about. I hope life is well with you, with its usual bumps and scrapes. I've been working on sleep this week because I just do realise it's everything, isn't it? I think sleep is number one. Um, I'm not the expert, but I'm going to put sleep over nutrition. I think now it's 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 the key, the key metric, the key mechanism. Um, Trying to get. Well, the trick, isn't it, is never to have an alarm clock to wake up naturally. I woke my son up yesterday to go to school and he was snoring. You don't want to be, you know, you don't want to be woken up in the middle of a deep sleep. I think that's a really bad idea. You know, when the alarm goes off and you're like having a vivid dream and you just, you don't know where you are when you wake up. What's going on? What day of the week is it? No, 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 no. You ideally, and I know this is easier said than done, but ideally you want to, you want to wake up naturally. Maybe go and have a wee. Get back into bed and then just have another little sleep, you know. So let's imagine you wake up at seven. Okay, let, let, let's say you've got to be, you've got to be up and running. You've got to be out of bed and everything's got to be moving by, let's say, say eight o'clock, right? In an ideal world, you would wake up at 6.37 having gone to bed early. In principle, ready for your day, right? Let's say 6.30, right? Let's say you went to bed at, at, at 10.30. You woke up at 6.30. That is eight hours, isn't it? You're welcome. But what you do by going to bed early, if you can, and then waking up early is is you you have that wee, maybe even a glass of milk. 
you get back into bed and have another little snooze. Okay, and if you don't sleep, you just lay there and rested. But what about that little top up sleep, right? The extra half an hour from 6.30 to 7. And then you wake up at 7 or having had the 30, 30 minute top up and then bang, you are ready to go. Compare that to how it normally is for you, me and everyone, which is you get to bed at midnight, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. You've got to be up at seven, right? This is this is reality, isn't it? This is our lives. This is what happens. And you wake up uh, in a deep sleep, the alarm goes off and you chuck some coffee down and away you go. And then you just spend the whole day a little bit overstretched, a bit tired. You've got dark rings on um, around your eyes. You've got bags. You're sluggish. It's not great, is it? Why, why don't we prioritize our sleep? I have become much healthier in, let's say, the last five to 10 years. And the reason why is because I'm in my late 40s now. I'm 49. And my body will not accept the punishment anymore. It will not tolerate the late nights. It will not tolerate the hangovers. It will not tolerate eating bad food. I just am physically punished. And and so that's the one thing. The advantage of getting older is, yeah, your body just says no. I mean, most people cut back on booze when they get older because it just doesn't work anymore, does it? It's not because you're a good person and you're virtuous or terribly self-disciplined. It's just because you know that it it ain't it ain't working. I think there's another thing, and I don't know if you any of my older listeners and viewers have this, but as I've got older, my my tolerance for not feeling good has has diminished so when i was younger i somehow like would feel crap and didn't care and would just sort of soldier on and tolerate it put up with it and just be tired because by the way it's a myth that young people aren't tired i mean i remember being knackered at university so that's nonsense about you know don't if you're a bit older and you're feeling like jaded and low energy don't you know a lot of people i know they was like oh i'm getting old and they sort of accept that as a kind of as a death sentence, you know, no, there is no godly reason why you could be 60 and not feel brilliant all the time. I really mean it. With lifestyle changes, it's a myth that we should somehow accept this eternal decline. There's a really cool guy called David Sinclair. He's a scientist, I think at Harvard, and he's an expert in longevity. And he says that if you eat the right food and you do sport and you get enough sleep and sunlight and fresh air, that you can actually not just uh, slow down the aging process, but you can make yourself younger. I mean, that's a hell of a statement. I can't back it up, but that's his view. David Sinclair, you can hear his excellent um, interview with Joe Rogan on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. I'd recommend it. It's a good listen. But it all boils down to the obvious things that you know that I know, which is to eat real food, get enough sleep, don't take drugs, limit your alcohol intake, don't smoke. It ain't complicated, is it? It ain't complicated. But so, yeah, so I've been prioritizing sleep this week. And listen, I know there'll be lots of you, understandably, and I, I hear you saying, yeah, that would be lovely if I could be in bed by 10. But I've got kids. I've got w- work in the evening to do. I've got this. I've got that. And I understand that. And and I, I so look, I'm, I'm cutting you a lot of slack. It's just it's where possible, right? It's when you're able to get to get to bed earlier. Right. Even if it was just once a week that there's, you know, maybe maybe the weekend match, you're not working on Saturday rather than going out and getting smashed with your mates. Why don't you have them around for a quiet dinner and then just say, listen, lads and ladies, 
it's carriages at carriages at 10, right? We wrap things up at 10 and you, just, you get yourself into your bed at 10 o'clock at night on a Saturday. Imagine that, right? Don't, don't switch on the telly. That is fatal because that's three hours gone. Do not touch your smartphone or social media. No doom scrolling. Get in bed at 10. Find a book and just lie there. And also I've noticed another thing, by the way, which is, um, and I'd recommend this, right, which is I think we've got this habit now because our sleep is so dysfunctional because we live these busy lives 24-7. It's, it's all because of the Industrial Revolution, by the way, because before the Industrial Revolution, we followed the circadian rhythm, right? If you were a farmer a thousand years ago, uh, what you used to do is um, you'd sort of get up with with the sun, really. You know, you'd be up at half four, five o'clock and you'd be in bed at seven, right? When the sun went down, that's the circadian rhythm. Well, we ignore that. We we fight against it now, don't we? Um, but we've got this habit. And I mean, I don't know if it's just me, but I, know I think a lot of people do this, which is that they they go to bed when they're sleepy and just basically like when the tank is empty i think maybe that's a mistake i wonder that that's a bit like drinking water when once you've become really thirsty because i couldn't believe it last night i had this deliberately early nights and it felt very odd being in bed so early 10 o'clock at night with a book um and then I sort of read a few pages of the book and then I sort of decided, all right, well, we're having an early night, so let's stick to that. So I switched off the light and I didn't feel remotely tired because it was too early. Right. And I think this is the mistake we all make is that we go to bed when, when we're in shutdown. Well, an amazing thing happened, which is I didn't feel tired. And then suddenly I was asleep because I woke up this morning and thought, oh, I wasn't tired when I had my head on the pillow when my eyes were closed. But then I fell asleep. So you don't need to be sleepy, to sleep. I think proof of that is that, and if you found in the evening, you feel all right and you watch a movie and you nod off during the movie. So you didn't know you were asleep, but then like, it could be an action film. I fell asleep during John Wick 4, which is the most high octane, adrenaline fueled movie out there. I fell asleep. I missed about half an hour of, of the John Wick 4 and around, you know, 300 murderous deaths I slept through. Can you imagine? So go to bed when you're not tired. How about that for a counterintuitive piece of advice? Give it a go. And just close your eyes and then you'll just fine. You'll just fall asleep. You don't need to be knackered to sleep. A um, couple of other sleep things, and I know it's obvious, but I'm afraid the obvious things are true. I want you, I honestly, I want you to not have any caffeinated drinks after midday. Okay. Now, I know you're going to be cross with me and you're shouting and it's like, how am I going to do that? But listen, be thankful that I'm letting you have caffeine at all. So you get your coffee in the morning, right? Just that's when you need it. In the morning, you're going to boot up your metabolism. I do love it. I love the mechanism of the fact that you wake up, you feel a bit groggy and you have that coffee and then bang, you're ready to go. I, I love that. It's kind of Popeye with his spinach, isn't it? Superman going into the telephone box and, and putting on the um, the underpants and the uh, sort of spandex leggings and everything that he wears, old Superman. Bit of a legend, isn't he, Superman, you've got to say. He's one of the good guys. Although I did love Superman 3 when he turned bad. Do you remember that? 
that was amazing because he got kryptonite and then he, he, he turned all evil. He stopped shaving and he went to bars and he was doing shots of whiskey and stuff. And he, um, just to be annoying, he went and straightened the Leaning Tower of Pisa. I quite like hashtag bad Superman. I think they should have given bad Superman a whole movie. But that's another story. Um, yeah, I do. I do. I do like personally. I like that mechanism of you're changing your mood. You're changing how you feel. I mean, let's be honest. It's a stimulant. It is a drug caffeine. But I think it's one of the more acceptable ones. Caffeine, you know, first of all, caffeine is actually the consumption of coffee and tea is linked to good heart health, to the delay of Alzheimer's and dementia type symptoms. I also think it's a mood enhancer. So I would argue that caffeine is quite good for mental health. A friend of mine has bipolar disorder and was caffeine free for many years and then started having coffee and said, I didn't realize no one told me that coffee is a mood enhancer. I was like, that's probably not bad if you suffer depression, but like any stimulant, like anything, you mustn't abuse it. You mustn't overdo it. But I think a bit of coffee or tea in the morning is, is fine. I, I like it. I'm not sure I'll ever not have it. I have to be honest. We'll see. I might do a podcast caffeine free, but I think you'll find it it will be it'll be very bad because I'll just be gloomy. I'll probably be drooling. I'll be like a sort of human puddle, right? Just this lifeless amoeba just grunting at you. Probably be really I'll probably actually be in a bad mood on the podcast. Do you know what I mean? A bit grouchy with you even, you know, a little bit little bit shirty, a little bit ill-tempered. But anyway, yeah, look. Dolan admits he's addicted to caffeine, but that's it. Make, make sleep this week. Will you do me a favor? Will you make time for sleep and really prioritize it? Okay. Even just one night, it won't baby steps. One night a week is the good night of sleep and then you'll feel good and then you'll be amazed. And, and that is uh, the other thing, by the way, she'll quickly just power through it, which is that no caffeine after midday. And by the way, I don't want you to have really like loads of strong caffeine beforehand either. You know, coffee is a bit like food, right? If you eat food slowly, it's really clever because if you eat food slowly, your body has time to tell you you're full. If you eat food quickly, you have a surplus of calories before you realized that you'd had enough. If you eat slowly, so let's imagine you've got like a, a massive tray of sushi, if you eat that slowly, halfway through the tray of sushi, you're done. You're like, I'm full. The stretch receptors in your gut will tell you we're, we're, we're good to go. We're, we're. But if you eat that sushi quickly, you'll have eaten the whole plate before giving your body the chance to notice that it was full. So eating slowly is really good. Anyway, so in the morning, uh, so it's the same with caffeine is what I was going to say. People think they need strong coffee, but have a weaker coffee. Or have a week of tea and give it half an hour. And I think you'll find you get the kick anyway. So I, I believe, honestly, that people are overdosing on caffeine. I think that the dosage is too high. It astonishes me when you go to somewhere like Starbucks and you get like their filter coffee. It is like treacle. It's like soup. It's like gravy. I, I can take, I once bought a filter coffee from Starbucks. I got the really big one, the Grande. Is that the, is that the big one? I think it is. Isn't it? No, Venti. Venti is like a bloody bucket of coffee, isn't it? But it was an experiment. I bought this Venti coffee. I put it in a flask. It was a huge amount of coffee. I put it in the fridge. And every day I would take about two or three centimeters of the coffee. No, two, two centimeters of the coffee, put it into a big mug and then add boiling water to it and then milk. And it was plenty strong enough. So I've diluted this filter coffee by 
I put the milk in. It looks like coffee. It's not weak. It's still quite strong. And I get a jolt from it. Maybe I'm more caffeine sensitive than you are. But if you if you go to a cafe and you're getting a coffee and remember, it's got to be before midday, go for a one shot right, or even a half shot. Can I get a half shot latte? Because most cafes will do that. They'll put less coffee in. I, I honestly think you'll get the same hit. And that means you're not filling your body with this stimulant, you know, and overdosing on it. And the half-life of caffeine is very long. It's like 12 hours. So it just stays in your system forever. Anyway, I was going to rattle through this. So, so have a week of coffee before midday. Um, get all of your drinking and eating in during the day. So I hydrate a lot in the morning. So I have my coffee and then I have water after the coffee. And that's that's my window for having lots of hydration because that means that I, I've kind of done all of my wee-wees by the evening. So I, I I mean, you might think this is mad. I'm not a doctor, so please don't take this as professional advice, but works for me. I don't, unless it's a you know, really hot summer or something, unless I'm thirsty, I do not have fluids after sort of mid-afternoon. I just don't. Not a problem. And it means that there are, there are fewer trips to the loo later. I think that is good for your sleep. I mean, I still do. I, I still will wake up sometimes and have a pee-pee, but you don't want to be getting up three times a night. That's really bad for your rhythms and all that. I don't think you need it. It's my personal view. I don't think you need all that liquid. So get it done in the first half of the day, all your hydration. The other thing to do is try to eat early. So if you're stuck at work, then have something at work at 6, 6.30, 7 o'clock. Do not be coming home at 9 o'clock and switching on the oven and firing up the microwave. And No, it's too late. Then you go to bed, you've got all this food in your gut, your insulin is raised and you're giving your body work to do when it's supposed to be winding down. Your tummy, you want to be, you want the caffeine levels in your body to be really low by nine, 10 o'clock. You want there to be very little food in your gut, almost nothing, ideally. If you're worried about being hungry, just have a little shot of olive oil just before you go to bed because that's just easy for your body to process and it will kill any hunger you might have but you're best off going to bed honestly on an almost empty stomach it's a beautiful thing and you will wake up the next day feeling refreshed and reading is good by the way may i recommend reading before you go to bed because and it doesn't matter what it is i mean clearly a newspaper is probably going to be quite triggering but if that works for you but any written material there's something about the analog nature of looking at words looking at a paper looking at a book or whatever hard copy or even your Kindle, but we're not touching that smartphone. And that will be it. So there you go. Look, have have some lovely sleep this week. I promise you, you're going to love it. Right now, let's um let's talk about uh, books. By the way, I'm terrible. I'm one of those people. I buy books and don't read them. Now, to my defence, I never buy new books. It's always secondhand. But I'll go into charity shops, which the Americans call thrift store thrift stores or a bootleg sales, whatever. No, is it car boot sales? But anyway, I buy, I've got an addiction to secondhand books and I've got a weird criterion. I mean, obviously I have to be interested in the author or the subject matter, absolutely. But I'm interested in the age of the book, like the aesthetics of it, the cover a little bit. I, I just find books very aesthetically beautiful. The smell of a book and give a little, give a little sniff. The colour of the pages. I love those old books which have yellowed and they actually look like a kind of shortbread biscuit where they're a little, each page is a little brown on the edges and then there's a kind of pale yellow 
inside. I love that. And I don't, I, I make no apologies really because these books, you know, that'll be like one pound or two pounds for a secondhand book. And it might be some classic like War and Peace or Great Expectations for, for one pound fifty. I mean, the, the value of that is extraordinary considering these books are some of the best books ever. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't like um, books. I don't like books with a big typeface. They annoy me. I like a small typeface. I like a lot of words on each page is what I like. And I like crisp font. You know, there's books which have got a, a really big, really smudgy font, really fat letters. What's that all about? Unless I've really got to read that book, I will eschew any book that's got a smudgy font. Thanks, but no thanks. Um, so another thing that I'm trying, I'm going to really give a go because I've got to tell you, this whole podcast is about my attempts to have a better life. And, and basically what I'm doing is I'm taking you on this journey with me. I want you to have a better life. I want to have a better life. So I'm going to do all these different things. And at some point, I think we're going to open up a line of communication between you and me so that you can feed back the things I'm saying and also give me thoughts, give me ideas, which will make my life better that you've got. Because let's be honest, really, it's 50-50, isn't it? Okay, this is all I'm doing. This podcast is me offering you my two pennies worth. But you've got arguably even more to offer than I do. Everyone's got a story and everyone's got little life hacks and things that they do. We can learn from each other, can't we? But anyway, so the books is something I'm going to give a go, which is I'm going to try to read a little bit every day. And that ties in with getting to bed early. So I think whenever I'm able, work allows me to get to bed. But, but even if I fall into bed at midnight or one in the morning, um, I think I'm going to still give it a page or two of a book just to tick the box and to set that habit in place. Because I think reading is a bit like meditation. I, think, I don't know why, but I think there's some mechanism there of meditation. Now, you might struggle with books and that might be a turnoff for you. Well, I've got good news for you. It's a terrible turnoff for me. I was never a reader. My mother gave me, she was desperate for me to read. But the, the problem was she did a great job, an amazing lady. But she did, and all my teachers are saying, they made reading sound like a punishment. So it was always like, go to your bed and read a book. I was like, well, it wasn't very attractive, a very attractive idea. So I kind of used a reverse psychology on my kids. And when I wanted to get them to read, I used to say, let's go, let's jump into bed and let's have a reading party. That's what I used to call it. Let's have, let's go, to, let's go upstairs really early and have a reading party. And that, what that involved is me reading a book and maybe them reading some of the paragraphs to me to improve their reading. But I pitched it as an entertainment thing and as a party and somehow that manipulation worked. Whereas we didn't do, when I was a kid, it was honestly reading was like something dry and austere that you've got to do that you don't want to do. How terrible is that? Just like history at school was boring. Imagine history being boring, but I'm afraid to say at school, history was boring. I don't really blame the teachers. I think it's the curriculum. It's all the dates, isn't it? You don't need those dates. History should be the stories. That's what it is, isn't it? History is a set of stories of the past. It should be told like stories. But there you go. So. I think that so you might struggle with the books, but. It doesn't matter, actually, as long as you can read. Right. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you're literate. And if you're not, then 
let's get you some support and do the open university or some online study and let's get you reading. But if you are lucky enough to be literate, don't worry about being a bad reader, right? Don't worry about being someone that reads slowly or that forgets the paragraph and has to start again. Allow yourself to be a bad reader, okay? And don't compare yourself to those characters that can do a book in a day, those nut jobs, those human freaks, right? That's not me. That may not be you. Don't worry about it. I mean, I think this is a true thing across the board with with this show is the message of, you know, just just do it. It doesn't have to be do it. I mean, do you remember my that old thing? Do bad work. You know, if you've got some work to do, um, let it. It is better if it's bad than if it doesn't happen at all. So make that the approach with your reading. Just, you know, be a bad reader. And therefore, a paragraph is better than nothing. But see if you can get into the habit of it. I've also got another trick. Something that really puts people off reading is the thought that they're going to hate the book. And I completely understand that. It's very possible that 95% of all books are books that you wouldn't enjoy or wouldn't want to read. So how do you overcome that? Well, there's a couple of options. First of all, you can, if you've got a Kindle, that's great because the Kindle, which is an e-reader, an electronic book, allows you to sample and it will give you the first chapter or first couple of chapters. So that's not a bad shout. So if you're interested in the book and you've got a Kindle, then why don't you download a free sample? And if you like what you read, well, then you can download the whole book. If you're not a fan of e-readers, and here's an amazing trick, all you need is a smartphone. Okay, so let's say you've got an iPhone or an Android. You can download the Kindle app on all devices, right? It's free. So you download the Kindle app. That means you don't need a Kindle device. It's just on your phone through the App Store or the Google Play or whatever it's called. You download this uh, Kindle thing and then you select the book, you download the sample, you read that. And if you like the book, then you can buy the book. So that's perfect. So you didn't need an e-reader, but you've used that mechanism of having the app on your phone to sample a book. The other thing you can do, by the way, is go to an actual bookshop, which is a lovely experience anyway. It's nice to kind of browse bookshops and you can just read the first page of each book in a shop and see if it grabs you. So that's what I would recommend, sampling or pop to the bookshop. And uh, and then the other thing to do is secondhand books. Obviously, try not to buy new books. There's just so many places where you can buy secondhand books or even borrow books from friends. Ask for recommendations. Hey, I'm thinking of getting into reading. I'm not a reader. Can you think of any excellent place where I could start? And the other thing to do is that when you've got the book, okay, if it's not delivering after 10 pages, I want you to get rid of that book. Okay. Now, there will be academic types who will be horrified because they'll argue that Anna Karenina only gets good after page 2000. Fine. But I'm going to assume you're busy, that you've got a short attention span, that your potential new reading career will be in competition with Netflix, games on your phone actual gaming on a computer. God knows there are so many other things that we can do than read. So therefore, the reading's got to be great. You've got to like the book. <clears throat> so I would say that if you, and I had this last night because I, I, like I mentioned, I buy a lot of secondhand books. And there were two last night 
And I gave each of them about 10 pages and it was just really boring, really dry, not even that well written. I thought one was a historic book about the Industrial Revolution and the other was a, a comic novel set in South Africa. And neither of them did it for me. So what I did is I just put them in a pile, which is give away and they will go to my local charity shop. And then I picked up a third book, which is called A Widow for One Year by John Irving. Started that. Ten pages in, it's delivering. It's a good read. So I'll stick with it. So there you go. So two out of three books I rejected. And then I finally go to a third one. Now, why that works is because it's got me reading, hasn't it? And this is where people go wrong is they buy a book, they don't enjoy it. And they go, oh, I just don't like reading. Is that, no, that's not the case. You didn't like the book that you read. And I think at school, you know, we're expected just, I mean, obviously you are, you know, you're at school, you're studying, you've got to read the whole book, even if you don't want to. But that's not how life works. So if you get choosy, if you get really fussy and you select books based upon your enjoyment, then you'll become a reader and you just keep that ruthlessness about it. There's a guy called V.S. Nye Paul. What a great writer. And I just read, I bought one of his books secondhand because it was very thin. And that's another great tip, by the way. Why don't you start with novellas or very short books? It's very satisfying. It's very rewarding. It's very encouraging. It's very motivating to finish a book, even if it's just 30 pages long. You're like, you have read a book. And that kind of builds self-confidence because I think people are afraid of reading as well. And by the way, this conversation is also of use to regular readers because there are lots of people I know who read voraciously as children and perhaps as young adults and who don't read now. I know so many lapsed readers. And I think that my formula of sampling from online, reading a couple of pages in a bookshop and having the 10 page rule for any book um, is a game changer for them too. But I, I think that reading is just very good for the brain. I think it's good for the soul. It's meditative. It will improve the quality of your sleep. I mean, there's nothing worse than watching TV before you go to bed with all of those images, the light coming off the screen, the action. It's so unnatural. But a book is old school and fabulous. By the way, if you've got a partner in the bed with you and you're worried about disturbing them, may I recommend a small headlamp, which they use for rock climbing. There are some places that sell them very cheaply. We've got a place called Poundland. And I think they're two quid in Poundland. Real basic little LED light. Three AAA batteries inside. And it's very focused light. It goes on your forehead. And that will allow you to read at night without disturbing your partner. You just turn over and you have the book to one side. And your partner is sleeping, sleeping in the other direction. A beautiful thing. Right. Now, some practical stuff for you. Um, if you're going somewhere by car that's busy, park miles away and walk. My entire childhood was spent in the car as my mum circled like the neighbourhood, trying to find a parking space right next to Sainsbury's where she wanted to do the supermarket shopping. Absolute disaster. You just lose half your life trying to park near to where you're going. Don't bother. Just accept that you're going to park further away and walk. And it's just been a game changer for me. I've got to say, I mean, it's the same with, you know, those motorway service stations. People try to like just park near 
the entrance and it's like busy there i just like i take the first i i go like further out where there's loads of spaces park the car and it takes me approximately three minutes to then walk to the entrance as opposed to half an hour of idling the car and going around in circles waiting for a, a space to become available it's the same with shopping centers just, just find the worst parking space just 11 miles away and walk and you just find it it doesn't take long and suddenly it is a five minute walk and it was no stress and it was actually got a bit of fresh air and you stretched your legs so stop trying to park near the location park miles away and walk as you know i'm a big fan of restaurants it's a lovely thing although i would argue if you're under financial constraints which i have been and i'm delighted to say continue to be then I do think it's the obvious thing to cut from your budget is the eating out thing. It's just crazy, isn't it? I found that after the pandemic that we'd had two years of not going out and then you kind of sit down in a restaurant and you look at the prices and it's like, oh my God, you want 20 quid for a burger. Are you mad? Are you mad? So I definitely got out of the habit of hospitality during the pandemic, but occasionally it's nice as a treat, isn't it? And I think that's how I like to roll. That's how I do it. You kind of look forward to it. Put it in the diary. Go, right. Two weeks on Tuesday, we are going out and we're going to have dinner and it's going to be lovely. Um, I've got a great trick and this is insane. Which is that when you arrive in a restaurant or a pub that does food and you sit down at your table and you're going to order food. If there are people at the table next to you who leave and there's food on their plates, take that food. Now, you may consider me to be a monster with this advice. Restaurant owners will not be happy. The pub landlord will kill you, but <laughs> rules are there to be broken. So you wait for the people on the other table to leave. Make sure they've completely gone. And then before the waiter or waitress cleans up, you're like, I'm having a couple of those spring rolls. Look, they didn't finish the spring rolls. Uh, what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to eat food that they they're halfway through so i'm not going to have a burger that's got like teeth marks in it i'm not going to do that okay i'm not mad but um if there are some chips in a little side bowl that haven't been touched or have only been half touched right there's no saliva on them grab those chips and it doesn't matter what the food is but as long as it's in its original format and it hasn't received contact with the owner's mouth um, I love to grab food from tables where that hasn't been cleaned up. It's just a beautiful thing. It's like the ultimate starter, isn't it? Now, let me say it's naughty. It's not allowed. It's bad. I'm a bad person. I'm a terrible human being. But if you see the opportunity, give it a whirl. And by the way, I'm going to defend this. And I'm going to say that this is against food waste. So really, you're saving the planet. Um, I think what would be obnoxious is if you took food from other people's plates who had left and then you didn't order any food. That's that is stealing. The way I justify it is that I'll be ordering a full meal anyway, but I've noticed that two sausages are on that plate, intact, untouched. I'm going to eat those sausages. I've done it actually hotel breakfast with a piece of bacon on, on someone else's plate or their toast, some of their butter, the jam. What's not to like? Knock yourself out. Go, go, go. You're welcome. Now, what else have I got for you? Yeah, well, you know, when you're in the restaurant, I love to be courteous to the staff. We've talked about this before. Find out what they're called. Tell them your name as well. Make eye contact when you put your order in. They are a human being. They've got a hard job. They work long hours. They work unusual and antisocial hours. 
So it's nice to be nice to restaurant staff and being selfish, you will get a better service as a, as a result. That shouldn't be the motivation, but it does tend to be the 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 uh, the consequence. I just remember working in Burger King years ago when I was a student and when people used to order at the till, they wouldn't make eye contact with you at all. They'd like just look at your chest. It's very sad. You're kind of invisible. It's not very nice. So I like to make the invisible people highly visible. The other thing that I like to do is after the meal, I like to tidy up the plates. Now, again, it's quite controversial, but I just think it makes their life easier and it's not too much to ask. So I gather, let's say there are four of us, I'll gather the plates and I'll put them on top of each other. And then all the cutlery on the very top plate. And then it means they can just come along and grab them. You know, I've even been known to kind of gather crumbs onto my hand and then shake the debris onto the plate as well. You know, just a little bit of a tidy up, get the serviettes and the tissues in one place. If you blow your nose, take the tissue with you. Don't make them have to handle that. It's not very nice, is it? So, yeah, I like I like to clean up the table at the end of a meal. NGL, that means not going to lie. It's the first letter of each word, one after the other. Um, the other thing is, no, what does it say? Sit next to partner. Oh, yeah, that's quite good. If you go to a restaurant and it's a loved one or even a friend, frankly, but especially someone that you love, like a that you're romantically involved with, your partner. Um, try to get, it's only two of you, right? But if it's not busy, say to the restaurant, do you mind if we have that, that big table over there, which would be like for four, right? So you get a table for four but only two of you use it and you sit next to each other, right? Don't sit opposite each other. Now, I know opposite is nice because you gaze into each other's eyes, but I personally think it's even more romantic to sit next to your partner at dinner because they're, they're next to you. And I just find it cosy. And it's easier to kiss, which is terribly important. I think you'll agree. And you're both looking out into the world next to each other. Don't know why. I just like to sit next to my partner for, for dinner. Um, try both see which works better for you it's less confrontational as well isn't it and you can i don't know i don't know you just it's the physical proximity um the other thing to do is it says here guest back losing out what does that mean what does that mean guys can you help me here guest back losing out oh yeah okay um if you have a guest let's let's say you're um, meeting somebody that's going to give you a job or someone you want to impress or whatever it is but you just want to make sure they have a really good time in this restaurant as your guest give them the seat which is against the wall which is looking out onto the restaurant okay and give yourself the outside seat, which just looks at the wall. Let your guest have the view, okay? So what you're looking at is your guest and a wall. They're looking out at the whole restaurant. It's courteous. It's chivalrous. So actually, I would I would say like if a first date, I don't think you should sit next to them on the first date. That's a bit full on. That's a bit in your face. So if it's a first date, yeah, offer them the seat which is and, and also very often in a restaurant you'll find that the back seat the seat at the wall is going to be like a sofa type seat it's going to be comfortably upholstered and then the outer seat is going to be a chair so let your guest have the comfortable sofa -y thing 
and let yourself have the hard, wooden, unforgiving chair. And that will be appreciated. Just a nice thing to do. So I always offer my my guests, friends, I give them I give them the uh, the chair that looks out on the restaurant. When you go to a restaurant, ask for a table that you actually want, because very often in a restaurant, they will sort of just guide you to some really crappy table next to the toilets where you can hear the sort of flushing and people pissing and all the rest of it. You know, I mean, doing their ablutions, clearing their throat, blowing their nose. It's horrible, isn't it? Or you get another you get you get a table right at the door. Every time it opens, an arctic wind pierces you. Horrific, right? Hurricane conditions as you make your way through the French onion soup. Welcome to hell. And people arriving, guests arriving, taking their coats off, brushing their coat against you, waving their arse in your face. Disgusting. Thanks, but no thanks. Take a hike, loser. But it mystifies me that restaurants try to guide you always to the rubbish table, especially if you're on your own. I mean, if you're on your own, you're treated like a serial killer, aren't you, really? You are just the worst of the worst. You are. Your status is zero as a single diner and a guest. You know, I, I when I do stand up, I'm in obscure cities away from home and I have no choice but to eat, eat on my own. Yeah, they don't like it. They find it creepy. And you do get the worst, crappiest table when you're on your own. But even if it's a couple, I find it the only people that get good tables is like four or six people, a big old group. And then suddenly they roll out the red carpet. But what I want you to do is I want you to assert your rights. Okay, this is important to me. You're spending good money going out. So just say to them, they'll offer you a table. Can we have a look and just say, can we have that table by the window, please? Sometimes they'll say that table's reserved and I'll negotiate and I'll say, well, listen, it's currently six o'clock. We're going to the cinema. We'll be out of here by seven. I can guarantee you we will vacate the table at seven. You negotiate and they go, well, yeah, well, that's fine because actually the reservation is 7.15. So if you're, if you're out by seven, no problem. And then you get the good table. So push for the table you want. Tell them what time you'll be done with the table. Uh, sometimes if I dine alone, I choose a nice table which is maybe a table for four, but I want to spread out. Maybe I've got my laptop. I want to do some work I'm preparing, which does happen sometimes. Um, I'll say to them, can I have that nice big table? And if you get busy, I'll move. Again, you're negotiating with them. Now, why are you going to negotiate? Well, because they're lucky to have you. Okay. The restaurants do not have a monopoly on food. They are not the gatekeeper to you being fed because you have food at home. There are these things called supermarkets. It's like a massive shop which contains all different genres of food. And what you do is you you remove uh, that food from um, a physical structure called a shelf or indeed a um, a device, a preservation device like a a refrigerator. And it goes into a container called a a basket or indeed a mobilized container, which is a trolley. And then you pay at the till, you hand over your money and then in bags, you carry that food home. It is a supermarket. It's tried and tested. It works. So we've got access to food. We don't need the bloody restaurants for food. But I often find the way they behave, the way they treat people is like, you're so lucky to be there or something. It's like, no, I've got amazing food at home in the fridge. So I'm, I'm here for the experience. I'm here for the good table. I'm here for great service. 
Um, the other thing I like to do is when I order food, I like to order food that I couldn't really make at home. So I think Thai, Indian, I think that kind of stuff is great. It slightly irritates me to go to a steakhouse and, and just have like a sirloin steak. I It is within my gift to make a sirloin steak at home and it will be a fraction of the price. But please assert your rights when you go out for dinner. Now, how are we doing? Um, listen, we, we've, uh, you know, we've, uh, I think we've done quite well here. Yeah, we've had lots of chat, haven't we? I mean, there's so many more things I could talk to you about. I really could. But um, shall I give you? Yeah, I, I, I think that's a dilemma now what to leave you with, because I, I do want to. Um, I want to leave you with some fabulous, gorgeous thing, some scrumptious. Yeah, here we go. If you're doing something in life and it's not going well, don't panic and just plow on with it. Okay. So for example, let's imagine you're a diver and you're attempting this rather fancy dive. Your body's flying through the air. At that point, it's not in the direction it's supposed to be. You don't panic. You just puff your chest out. You own it. You style it out. We're going to finish this dive and we're going to penetrate the water somehow. What you can't do is when you dive and you basically wimp out, you bottle it, you freak out halfway through the dive. You're more likely to get injured then because there's this sort of panic mid-dive. You're not owning it. You're not styling it out. You didn't puff your chest out. It's the same with an exam, right? My son did an exam recently and I said, if you get a difficult question or indeed several difficult questions, if the paper's going badly, uh, don't panic, just power through it. You're like, you know what? This is a tough paper. I'm struggling with all these questions, right? If you panic and wobble, then you're not going to get any marks. In fact, you're not even going to get the easy marks to the questions to which you knew the answer because you've allowed a few tricky problems to throw you and you've messed up the whole thing. And it's, it's actually not the exam. It's your emotional reaction to the exam. So if the exam's not going well, you're like, I cannot answer any of these questions. You know what you do? You take a deep breath and you just frigging answer them anyway. Give it your best shot. Just just get get some words down. Okay. And it's the same with everything. So I was performing in a national stand-up competition called So You Think You're Funny. It's a great opportunity. And I did a couple of heats, like lower, you know, you kind of these you do these rounds, you've got to get through the rounds. They, they, the first one was fine, the second one went well. And then I got to the semi-final, which was up in Edinburgh, what an opportunity, the Edinburgh Festival, semi-final of a national stand-up competition. And I, my, my chances were very low at this point because I was very new to stand-up. I can't really say that I had much of an act, really. I'd cobbled something together. So I did this gig, the semi-final. Well, you wouldn't believe it. I absolutely smashed it. It just, all the stars aligned and I owned it and people were screaming with laughter. It couldn't have gone better. Semi-final, job done, right? The judge came out and said the answer that the winner, I think you all know, it, it had to be Mark Dolan. Wow. Right. So I've won the semi-final. I get to the final at this point. Right. This is in the Edinburgh Festival. It's the end of the Edinburgh Festival. It's in a massive theatre. The finest comedians, 10 of us, maybe. You've got judges from the TV industry, agents, management, journalists, publicists, PRs, you name it. The good and the great of the entertainment world. Now, don't forget, I'm a young man. I'm at the beginning of my career. I want to be an entertainer. I want to be a broadcaster. I want to be a comedian. This is it. This is it. So the comedians, they start going on. They do their thing. 
and it's time for me to do my set. And remember, in all the rounds, and especially the semi-final, it's gone well. I've not had a bad gig. Obviously, by definition, I wouldn't be in the final if I had. So I just do exactly what I did before. And what's very awkward is that one of the comedians about 15 minutes before I went on did a joke very similar at the beginning. And of course, I'm inexperienced, right? I haven't got time to like change what I'm doing at this stage. No chance. You just got to like, this is what I've got. This is the act as it is. So this other comedian got a good laugh from a similar type joke, right? And of course, you know, it was parallel thinking. You know, he hadn't nicked my material. I hadn't nicked his, but it just was, it had two, you know, it unfor- unfortunate echoes of, um, because comedians can't, you know, if you watch a comedian within their own performance, you know, they, a lot of comedians will get rid of jokes which are too similar to other jokes because they cancel each other out. They kind of cannibalize each other, which is not good. So let me tell you that um, the first joke, which, by the way, was a good joke, which always got a laugh and it got me onto a strong, strong position. They didn't really laugh because they would kind of had a joke a bit like that 15 minutes ago. So my first joke is not strong. Oh, my God. And I didn't get the laugh and then there's no momentum. And then I get into the next jokes, which aren't as good as the first one. And they're not laughing at them because they're less good than the first one, which they didn't laugh at. We are on the slippery slope now. Not making this up, by the way. I'm not exaggerating. I performed this gig to what felt like silence. Um, I don't think I did. It wasn't a died on my ass thing. I did not die a death. But it just wasn't. A great gig and they were not doing the desired thing which is really laughing you know they were what you would do which is terrible for comedians which is that you'd get a joke they'd laugh and then immediately they'd stop laughing and then it's like there was no momentum you'd have to then do your next joke and then their attitude was well we'll, we'll decide joke by joke now which is a disaster right the way a gig's supposed to go is you get them laughing and then you're on for 20 minutes or an hour or whatever and and it's just like the laughter rolls it's like the waves you know and you're just you you've got this certain momentum and you get into your next bit of material and sometimes you've got your arm on on the mic stand and you're not even telling a joke. You've finished one bit and they're still sort of chuckling as you, you can get to your next bit. There's times when a joke works so well that you, you kind of have to wait for them to stop laughing, you know, and you like pull faces or you just like chill out until they've settled and then onto your next bit. Well, this did not happen at the final of So You Think You're Funny. It was not great. I can't lie. And um but can I say, and this is my advice to you, is it's a bit like when the diver, when it's not going well and your body's pointing in the wrong direction, doesn't matter. It's like, we're midair, we're going to get in that water and we're going we're gonna to get in that water like boldly and confidently. We're not going to wimp out. Or was the same with that gig. So I couldn't believe, and I'm on stage and I'm thinking to myself, this is the most important gig of your life. It could be career defining. Your wife, your future wife is in the audience right rooting for you oh my god the pressure all these industry people the decision makers disaster right but what i did is i didn't panic and i just thought to myself this is going amazingly badly and i kind of was almost amused by badly how badly it was going do you know what i mean i was like wow well done dolan this is the final and it's going badly well done you kind of in a way funny in itself if it wasn't so tragic Funny that the one gig to mess up was the one you needed to nail. But what I did is I didn't panic and I just powered 
through. I don't mean I sped through it, but I mean, I just powered through the set, right? And I just did my stuff like, you know what? This is my material and I'm just going to do it. I've done it a few times already. And I did not let my head drop, okay? I stayed confident while I created the illusion of confidence. Inside, I was dying. Inside, I was crumbling. I'm like, this is it. All going up in smoke. But on stage, I held it together, okay? And I did not allow the problems, the failure, them not laughing to influence what I was doing. It would be a bit like, imagine if you're, you're doing the marathon and it starts snowing or you've got hail bashing in your face, right? You've got two options. You sort of either stop and take shelter or you just kind of go, well, there you go. I've got, I've got, I've got hail now. I've got snow. I've got blizzard conditions and you just crack on with it. You just plow through, through the blizzard, through the snow. You just, and the other thing I like to do, which um, again is quite useful for you if you're, let's say you're doing a presentation at work or whatever, is the worse it's going, right? You should adopt the opposite emotion, which is to kind of pretend it's going really well. Um, I have that trick, by the way. Sometimes you get quiet audiences. All audiences are lovely, but sometimes they can be a bit quiet. It can be a bit quite, quite hard work. And what I do with them, I sort of smile and relax and just go, you guys are great. I'm having so much fun tonight. Right now, actually, any comedian will tell you is like, no, they're just a crap crowd and like, like bloody pulling teeth. But I don't tell them that. I go the other way and go, it's so fun, man. You guys are great. And I don't know. It seems to work. It's reverse psychology. And then they, they kind of think, oh, are we? Oh, that's good. And they can then open up a little bit. When comedians go, you guys are a bit quiet or you're a bit rubbish or you didn't like that joke. That is a disaster. So with this gig, I'm kind of just cracking on with it and kind of pretending it's going fine. And... It's not going fine. It is not. I promise you. The other acts got like lots of laughs and stuff and cheer. And I, it was mediocre. And it was proved at the end. I walked off. I knew for a fact I was not going to win this thing. I didn't even place, right? I didn't get second. I didn't get third place. I got nothing, right? It did not. It, it did not. The, the stars did not align that night as they did in the semifinal. But I held it together. I didn't collapse. Do you know what I mean? I didn't panic. I didn't collapse. I just kept my dignity and I gave it my best shot. Well, the moral of the story is that after the show, I was in this kind of green room area with the other acts and we're all chatting. It's fine. I'm glad it's over. And I said, no, that wasn't great. And congratulate the winner. Brilliant stuff. And um, the... Director of television, the director of television at Channel 4, a very influential man called Kevin Ligo. I'm going to name him because everything I tell you happened. It's all true. And therefore, you might as well have the name of the person. He's a great guy, very creative man, very clever man with a CV as long as your arm in television. Uh, Ali G. Um, and all those big Channel 4 hits. Millions and millions of shows, ITV, I've, I've forgotten now, but just everything. Mr. TV, very nice man. And he walked past the winner. He walked past the runner-up. He walked past the two guys, I think, that shared third place. He walked over to me. I beg your pardon. And he just said, uh, hi, well done. What do you want to do next? It's director of television at head of entertainment i think that was his title forgive me head of entertainment channel four what do you want to do next and i just said well you know i want to write comedy and i want to um, do 
do more stand-up and I want to work in TV and da da da. And um, he just said, uh, yeah, go for it. You know, he was very encouraging. And I think I followed it up with, which led to a meeting with a production company. So it opened a door. But most importantly, this guy had somehow seen something in what I was doing. And he's like, okay, he might not have had the best gig, but there was something there. And it was enough for him to walk. I mean, this is not me. This, I promise you, it's not a humble brag at all. The, the, the guy that won was brilliant and, you know, fantastic stuff. An Australian guy and a very, very talented comedian. So no problem. But this, he did not, he's not particularly engaged with the winner. And he went over to me and said, what do you want to do next? So, and that all came from the fact that I didn't panic. I didn't crumble. It was going badly. And I just, I held it together, man. And then what was my reward? engagement from an industry executive and of course let me tell you about television if I had died on my backside he would have not gone anywhere near me because when you in showbiz failure is very unattractive and they don't want to be part of it it's like kryptonite to these people yuck and I've done plenty of gigs where I have died on my backside and no one will even make eye contact with you you're invisible so that was it and that moment stayed with me and even his intervention, it didn't matter about the tangible outcome. It was the messaging of him coming over and saying, what do you want to do next? Why would he ask that? So that's it really. And that can be a moment for you that if it's not going well, don't panic, plow on. And the outcome could be way better than you expect. And the astonishing thing, by the way, is that sometimes things not going well will bring out a different side of you, even like a better side of you that if there are obstructions and barriers to what you're trying to achieve, you've got to like find something. And maybe if it had all been going smoothly, you wouldn't have found those things. You had to go a little deeper. You had to cross the Rubicon. And that might not be a bad thing. And it ties in with a big theme of this podcast, which is that resistance, discomfort, things not going well, life is difficult. You know, this is stuff to own and embrace, not push back on, not reject, but to accept and to grab and to swaddle yourself in how hard life is and make that your drug. Life being difficult is like, let that be, let, let that be your elixir of how hard it is. Remember old Jerry Seinfeld, find the torture you're comfortable with. So there you go. I, I think I hope I've left you something there. Um, it's very much, I know that story is about me, but it's, it's meant to be for you just to show you what can happen. Okay. What can happen. And sometimes when things are bad, that means that they're great. Have a great week. Loved your company. Um, tell your friends, tell your family about the show. Please subscribe on YouTube and to the podcast. It means it kind of lands automatically. And please give us an honest review because it allows more people to find out about the podcast. The podcast drops every Sunday. I hope that day works for you. And uh, yeah, go have a great week. Prioritize your sleep. Read, what did we say? A few pages a day. Just go for it. Even a paragraph. I, I will accept a paragraph a day between now and when we next chat. Will you do that for me? Remember, if you don't like the book, bin it, find another one. Big love. Have a great week and see you soon. Bye. Bye.